0: Africa Climate Podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Climate Podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Today I'm joined by Professor Chukumereja Okereke, who will be talking to us about climate justice. Professor Okereke, please introduce yourself.
0: Professor Okereke is a a professor of climate change governance and the director of the Center for Climate Change and Development at Alexe Kweme Federal University in Ndufali Keiko, Nigeria. I am also a visiting professor at the University of Reading in the UK and I also teach climate governance at the University of Oxford, also in the UK. My uh, specialism is global climate governance, climate justice, just transition, and the political economy of green growth, especially in Africa.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Okereke, for finding time to join us for this conversation.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: You have actually extensively worked on you know, issues of green economy transition and climate justice for years. When you're speaking about climate justice, what are we talking about?
0: One way to understand it is by, first of all, understanding that there are different ways to look at the climate change problem. There are many people who will not doubt that climate change is one of the most challenging problems facing the world. But depending on where you come from, you might actually be seeing the challenge from a different perspective. You know that um, there is an African proverb or saying of you know, seven blind men that went to uh, visit the elephant. Some touched the belly of the elephant and said, oh, it looks like a, a football. Others touch the ear of the elephant and say it looks like an umbrella. And some people touch maybe the leg or trunk of the le- elephant and say it looks like a big pole. So question often is not whether climate change is a problem. The question often is what kind of problem do you see? And the problem that people see often depends on where they sit and how they are looking at the problem. So for example, for economists, they will always be interested in the the financial aspects of climate change, how much does it cost, cost-benefit analysis, what is the cost of taking action versus the cost of not taking action. For maybe some kind of engineers, they see, oh, this is a, a, a challenge for some kind of technological innovation. Maybe we should be putting some mirrors in the atmosphere in order to sequester carbon. Maybe we should be seeding the ocean in order to reduce uh, the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that are escaping into the atmosphere, etc. But for some people, it's a moral problem. It's a moral problem in the sense that those who contribute the most to the problem are not necessarily the ones that are bearing the greatest impact of the problem. And so, this is a, a fundamental moral challenge. And there are many more that we can go into in detail. So from an African perspective, they have contributed the least to climate change, both historically and currently, and yet they are the ones that are bearing the greatest negative impact of climate change. So this is a moral problem and specifically a justice problem. Broadly understood, climate justice is purely just simply saying that the burden and benefits of taking action or not taking action on climate change has to be distributed in a way that is fair amongst all people and communities of the world.
1: And when we're talking about that fairness, we just mentioned regions like Africa contribute the least. Yes. But then again, we've seen areas like the G20 basically contributing 80% of the global warming we have. And already at 1.1 degree of warming, we're already seeing... Nature and communities around the world experiencing unacceptable climate impact. But you see, for us to stay within the parish threshold, there is now that particular certain amount of burnable carbon that is actually left. But when we go back to the Kyoto Protocol, it was very clear between developed countries and developing nations who had what responsibilities. But then when we move into the Paris Agreement, we've actually seen we have the NDCs, which ramps up everybody together. Does it mean that all of us have the responsibility for us to be able to make sure that the globe doesn't warm further? But then again, I'm wondering in terms of, because everybody has a right to develop, how do we make sure that um, we share this remaining carbon that is fast shrinking and is very tiny? How do we share it equitably?
0: Well, you actually touched on so many different issues in that question. So let me see uh, if I can unpack some of them. Um, Let's go back to your point on the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, Some people tend to criticize the Kyoto Protocol and say it was unworkable, it is top down, it's not fit for purpose. I think those are harsh criticisms often leveled by developed countries and their intellectuals as a way of discrediting what is actually a very interesting and innovative uh, global agreement. Now, as you said, the Kyoto Protocol and indeed the larger UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, envisage that the global cooperation to tackle the challenge of climate change has to be based on the principle of equity and the principle of equity is expressed in the UNFCCC in many different forms including the understanding that there has to be a per capita basis of attributing responsibility It also recognizes that developing countries would need to be allowed the space to to grow uh, and that that economic growth might entail emissions. And popularly, it also accommodates and stresses the principle of common but differentiated responsibility, which basically says, look, we are in this together, but the way in which that translates Two responsibilities will have to be different. Now, in terms of practical policy, the Kyoto Protocol then separates the countries crudely, if you like, into two, the developed and the developing countries. It gives what we call the quantified emission reduction obligation to rich countries and exempts poor countries, developing countries, from taking on quantified emission reduction. But then people can say, oh, the Kyoto Protocol has exonerated developing countries from taking action. That is not true. The crypto protocol allows that developing countries can still take a lot of action and offer a lot of national climate change communications, but not necessarily quantified emission reduction obligation. In my view, this is quite an important innovation and a very important breakthrough in global climate policy in particular, and global governance in general. This was the first time, recall, that the international community ever sat together and distributed some kind of quantified emission reduction obligations to states. Now, the U.S. pulled out of Kyoto and said it was unfair. Can you imagine that? The word they use is unfair, which, which is actually that they recognize that fairness is important. But it turns out that by saying on fair, they're just basically saying that China has been allowed to grow its emissions. Uh, and then they put the entire developing countries, the poor countries in Africa, into the same basket of China, and then pulled out of the of the Kyoto. Now, fast forward to 2015, we now have the Paris Agreement, which many people hail also as very creative, very innovative, and forward-looking brings everybody into similar kind of basket, right now saying that all countries, rich and poor, have to take action clearly under the nationally determined contribution. The problem is not so much that there is now this kind of putting everybody in similar basket, because the Paria agreement also makes clear that rich countries ought to support Uh, poor countries in taking action and the poor countries can divide their nationally determined contribution into two baskets one which is called unconditional which is what they can do whether they receive support or not and the other which is conditional which they which is action that they will take if they receive support so i'm making two points here First, that I reject the blanket criticism of the Kyoto Protocol as something that is unworkable. It is seen as unworkable because people or certain countries with power didn't want it to work. It is not unworkable because there's anything fundamentally wrong with the the Kyoto Protocol. I'm also making the point, however, that the Paria Agreement, which the Protocol is not in itself also inherently unjust because it allows uh, developing countries to take action that they can and say if you were to support me I can take more action the problem however is that the rich countries have not provided anything near the scale of support that poor countries need to take action Even when poor countries in Africa and other parts of the world have taken many steps of faith and trust by actually elaborating ambitious NDCs. So this is the problem. This then turns down to the point you make about carbon space. The IPCC and many other international scientific review committees and work have shown that the carbon space has been shrinking and that if we were to stay on 1.5 trajectory we actually have a very limited carbon space so i think it's a vital question as to how do you distribute this remaining carbon space and on top of that you also see a lot of pressure on african countries that they must develop in a certain kind of way okay that they for example should not use their gas wise rich countries are investing in continue to invest in fossil fuels uh, in their own countries so this lack of support to african countries and other poor countries to really ramp up their climate action and the pressure that they are also putting on african countries to develop in a certain kind of way is what many of us are really calling out as a classical act of climate injustice and some people have actually gone further to call this carbon colonialism uh and other people have talked about a carbon embargo on africa and some people have described as you know uh, carbon uh, racism against africa
1: yeah because actually when Looking at the whole issue of finance has been a lot of push and pull back and forth for years that is actually not provided. And also now moving forward to looking into like the conditioning whereby now Africa has a lot of natural resources. But then again, the whole issues of keep it down because you cannot develop using fossil for the, the, the way that rich nations have actually developed because then again, you have to make sure global temperatures do not go higher. But then again, look at Africa. The continent needs to develop. The continent has the agenda 2063. How do Africa keep on developing? And that's a whole issue of now justice. Is Africa pushing? Because from the Kyoto to the NDCs, then now someone keeps defining the way that Africa should go. Yeah. What's your thought?
0: Um, climate finance is very central to any conversations on climate justice for many, many reasons. Um the impact of climate change, uh, the need to climate-proof infrastructure, the need or the requirement of investment in climate innovation. Uh, All of these things require finance. Many African countries have submitted what was called the nationally appropriate plan of action and national adaptation plans. but. Several of such countries have not attracted anything close to the amount of money that they require. Depending on the the model that you use, this runs into uh, hundreds of billions and trillions per annum. Just for example, there was a work done by DFID just for Nigeria alone that indicates that climate change was already costing Nigeria about 100 billion US dollars per annum by 2020. And up to six hundred and fifty billion per annum by twenty fifty. This is just one country alone in Africa. This, of course, runs into trillions. Uh, and part of the challenge is actually that nobody really knows the true uh, scale or extent of the climate impact in Africa. But there are some reports that suggest that Africa and indeed many other vulnerable climate vulnerable countries are. Losing up to 25% of their GDP to climate change. And that climate change is setting the development of Africa and many other vulnerable countries back by up to 15 or 20 years. So, climate finance is really uh, important. The rich countries promised, as far back as uh, Copenhagen a meeting 2009, that they will give 100 billion to developing countries per annum. Uh, by 2020. 2020 came and went, and they were not able to mobilize uh, that amount of money. We are now in 2022. They have not mobilized that amount of money. And some people often think that this is just 100 billion. That's the end of the discussion. But what the agreement says is 100 billion per annum. So, and as I've indicated to you, I think that amount is actually very, very conservative compared to what is needed. So the lack of the provision of climate finance by rich countries to poor countries represents one of the serious and significant issues of climate injustice that is happening. There are many other issues around climate finance that is important to remember. I've already talked about the kind of gap between what is needed and what is being offered. But also there are many other issues, including, for example, that of the little amount that is actually being given to poor countries, including Africa, a vast proportion of that comes as loans, not as grants. And if there are loans, then they have to be paid back by the African countries, which means that A, African countries have not caused a problem, and B, they are now going to be saddled with debt, which they would... Have to pay, and their grand, their children and grandchildren and great grandchildren have to pay this debt to solve a problem which they did not cause. There is also the challenge that many of the rich countries are actually repackaging what's supposed to be their ODI, their official development assistance, and calling it climate change finance. This is a bit of unfair. Because it means that you are taking the money that is actually due for education, for agriculture, for schools and, and other things. Now you call it a climate finance. So this is not additional. Whereas what was said in the UNFCCC convention text is that the climate finance that is going to come from the rich countries to the poor countries has to be additional. That is on top of the existing uh, ODA, official development assistance money. So this is another big problem. And then remember that although uh, rich countries are still not keeping up to the uh, agreed 100 billion, this 100 billion is for all poor countries, right? And what we know is that nearly 80% of the climate finance that is on offer actually goes to uh, China and India, Bangladesh, and a number of other Uh, Asian countries, so that Africa attracts a very, very limited amount of this money because the requirements for attracting this climate finance can be very, very convoluted and very tricky and very hard. And and so it is double injustice to Africa uh, that this money is packaged as loan, but also that they are not able to attract uh, the limited amount of money on offer. But you also touched on the issue of Africa being dictated for, I think that one needs to be very sophisticated about how you look at this problem. I am certainly not preaching by any stretch of imagination that Africa should bury itself in the exploitation of fossil fuel. If you look at, you know, Africans' relationship with fossil fuel in the past 40 or so years, Uh, The exploitation of these fossil fuels has not necessarily benefited Africa that much. Africa is still very much a country in darkness with nearly 60% of its population not having access to adequate, regular modern energy. And we have about 40 million of African mostly women that are still cooking with the hazardous three-piece stove. Uh, which is heavy impact on air pollution. And yet Africa is uh, exploiting and ex- exporting all this uh, fossil fuel. So it is possible that Africa can invest again in huge amounts of gas exploration and still remain poor uh, energy-wise. And we see that renewable energy actually offers a lot of opportunities for Africa to leapfrog green growth and build even more uh, if you like more democratic uh, energy systems, because there are a lot of Africans are kind of the way that the settlement patterns makes it very very challenging to extend main transmission lines to these rural communities. And the sun is always shining in many parts of Africa, and there are models that show that African can actually harvest quite a lot of these uh, energy from the sun not only to fulfill its internal or national energy needs, but to the point of exporting these renewable energies to, to Europe. So why I'm all in favor of Africa, really making sure that it uh, escalates and uh, scales up uh, its investment in renewable energy, I'm also worried that other countries would want to or feel competent that they can come and tell Africa, you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that, given our colonial history. Uh, And especially when they are not providing the support uh, for that renewable energy uh, investment. I have uh, been told by a friend in uh, Irena that in the last 10 years or so, only about 2% of the renewable energy investment uh, has gone to Africa. So 98% of the renewable energy investment that they made globally has been in you know, Europe and Southeast Asia. So how are you investing so little in Africa to enable the uh, renewable energy revolution, but also saying, oh, no, 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 you cannot exploit gas. This is a contradiction. And sometimes people say the hypocrisy that is worrying. Is and also if you look at the narrative itself in the run-up to the cop 26 in glasgow europe said that we're not going to invest in gas because uh, gas is fossil fuel and there's a lot of methane leakage involved and african a lot of african leaders were crying foul so you cannot do this we still need to build a more balanced energy portfolio Many of you developed on the, you know, on the uh, used gas to develop. Many of you are still investing in gas. You are still building the North two stream running from Russia to Germany to, uh, and, and another one running from Germany, uh, Russia to, to China. Uh, how can you say this? Um, but anyway, most European uh, investors, at least public investors, were backing off from gas because of pressure from their domestic actors. Then, 2022 came, Russia invades Ukraine, and Europe becomes gas-starved, and suddenly, they say, oh, well, actually, it is okay to have gas as a transition fuel. Um, By the way, can we have a little bit, can we have some? So, beginning to think actively of investing in, in gas, in africa so so this is the challenge who is controlling the narrative who is declaring what is a climate friendly investment who is calling the shot so this is why it's important to realize that when you're talking about climate justice we've already established two key parameters which is number one the uh, asymmetry or differences or inequality if you like in contribution and number two is the differences or so asymmetry or inequality in impact but there are also three other types of asymmetry or inequalities that are important and they are inequality or asymmetry in voice which is participation who has the say uh, inequality and asymmetry in knowledge who is producing the knowledge that is determining what is good and right and, and bad but also uh, the systemic inequality which is uh, tied to colonial structures and uh, uh, unjust political economic structures that have really characterized the way the world has worked for a very very long time which means that some people generally have unfairness in terms of the balance of trade in the way that the united nations work and this results in them being disadvantaged in the other uh types of asymmetry that I have, I have mentioned lastly you asked me you know like who is is africa pushing well africa would like to say that they are pushing they have the agenda 2063 they were active if you like participants in the sort of europe africa party that happened earlier this year many of them attend the united uh, nations triple c meetings uh, many of them have made uh, some pledges and a number of them call consistently for more finance. So, yeah, maybe they are pushing. But if you ask me, I would still say that they are not pushing anywhere near as they should. I sometimes get the impression that African con- leaders even don't understand so much the extent to which climate change is a big threat to the overall economic development of Africa and the need to come together and and be much more strategic and forceful and proactive in pushing the African agenda.
1: I agree with you because there are so many ministers and we have our presidents attending, especially these particular meetings and there's a whole call that keeps on, Happening every single year, and every single year at the end of every COP, their complaints: we are not getting theirs, we are not getting, you know, capacity, we are not getting finances. I wonder whether Africa is doing enough, because at the end of the day, yes, Africa negotiates a block under the Africa Group of Negotiators, but the Africa Union, where is the leadership at the top level? Of Africa that is actually pushing the agenda and making sure that what the group is actually pushing to make sure within the negotiation chambers. But then again, politically, because these climate change decisions are made politically. But then again, making sure that political agenda, you know, for Africa in oneness is actually pushed at the top level.
0: Yes, um, that's a very, very, very important point. If you don't say here I am, nobody's going to say there you are. And complain is not an effective way to, uh, to begin. You, of course, can complain, but you have to be a lot more proactive, a lot more strategic. Uh, you have to be very clear about what is it that you need. You have to form coalitions. You have to be consistent. You have to use all forms of media, outlets, contacts, networks to push your case. You have to have clear leadership. You have to have your best. Africa is not really good at even just organizing themselves, effectively having the best minds that they can find from an African continent to help them to articulate and push these issues. Their approach is often very, very ad hoc, you know, last minute. You know, many times people think that COP meetings are the places where these big decisions are made. And to some extent, yes. But there's a lot, a lot of work that uh, often go into preparing yourself, you know, before you come to COP. South Africa, for example, got this Just Energy Transition Partnership deal. And some African countries were saying, oh, why why not me? Why South Africa? But it took a lot of preparatory work, a lot of diplomacy, a lot of negotiation, a lot of economic modeling, a lot of high-level diplomatic shuttling and all of those things to get the deal. So, of course, Africa has the Committee on African Heads of States on Climate Change, which is actually quite unique, perhaps one of the only type of, of that kind of institution in the world. But that's not enough. A lot more work needs to be done. Africa needs to assemble their best brains and minds and put resources into advocacy and planning, strategic maneuvering and negotiation to get. The best deal.
1: That is the thing. We're heading to the African COP in Egypt basically in November. What exactly are the specific climate justice issues this Africa COP has to achieve for Africa that are
0: critical? But they have not really changed much, if you ask me. Africans yeah. needs to perhaps <laughs> ask for a dedicated fund. They're not competing well in the global fund, climate fund. Perhaps they should be using this opportunity of an African COP to ask for a dedicated African pot, where they will have maybe easier access to this doesn't mean that you know they would have to be accountable for what they spend their money on but uh, it's been proven that they cannot compete favorably with china etc so africa needs to support the other countries that are asking for a financial facility on loss and damage this is a big challenge now loss and damage is happening and it is no longer tenable that we don't have a facility on loss and damage. Africa should articulate a position on climate change, migration, and conflict, something that is happening so much in Africa, and yet the UNFCCC is not talking about it. Uh, I have uh, developed a little piece on that, which uh, I'm finalizing and will share in due course. And then, of course, Africa has also been pushing the world to lower their emissions, to increase their climate ambition. Because if you have more, uh, mitigation ambition, then you don't have as much uh, negative impact. And I've already indicated that this kind of the basis and the formula of this climate finance needs to be thought through so that they don't come in, in form of loans, whether are, they are more uh, in form of grants. Um, so these are some of the ways that Africa can be pushing for specific climate justice issues in uh, COP27.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Professor Carrick I really appreciate you finding time today for this conversation.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Sophia, and I look forward to speaking with you again in future.
1: Absolutely. Sandy sana. Dalo. And that was all we had for you today. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Remember, you can access this podcast and many other more on every podcast channel. You access your other podcasts. Until next week, kwaheri, my name is Sophie Mbogu.
0: Africa, Climate Podcast.